Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, my lovelies, to the finale of The Black Doctor. I won't keep you waiting on this one, mates, and I'll place my thank yous at the end of this episode, which I'm super eager to get to because I've got a brand new Earl Grey Enforcer. Also, I've included a second tale titled Playing with Fire Part 1, involving the supernatural and superstition of old. I hope all of you lovelies enjoyed today's episode. Let's dig right on in. The Judge But you appear, Mr. Humphrey, to have left matters in a very unsatisfactory state. Mr. Humphrey Perhaps, my lord, my next witness may help to clear them up. The Judge Then call your next witness. Mr. Humphrey I call Dr. Eleusius Lana. The learned counsel has made many telling remarks in his day but he has certainly never produced such a sensation with so short a sentence. The court was simply stunned, with amazement, as the very man whose fate had been the subject of so much contention appeared bodily before them in the witness box. Those among the spectators who had known him at Bishop Crossing saw him now gaunt and thin, with deep lines of care upon his face. But in spite of his melancholy bearing and despondent expression, there were few who could say that they had ever seen a man of more distinguished presence. Bowing to the judge, he asked if he might be allowed to make a statement, and having been duly informed that whatever he said might be used against him, he bowed once more and proceeded. My wish, said he, is to hold nothing back, but to tell with perfect frankness all that occurred upon the night of the 21st of June. Had I known that the innocent had suffered, and that so much trouble had been brought upon those whom I love best in the world, I should have come forward long ago, but there were reasons which prevented these things from coming to my ears. It was my desire that an unhappy man should vanish from the world which had known him, but I had not foreseen that others would be affected by my actions. Let me, to the best of my ability, repair the evil which I have done. To anyone who is acquainted with the history of the Argentine Republic, the name of Lana is well known. My father, who came of the best blood of old Spain, filled all the highest offices of the state, and would have been president but for his death in the riots of San Juan. A brilliant career might have been open to my twin brother Ernest and myself had it not been for financial losses which made it necessary that we should earn our own living. I apologize, sir, if these details appear to be irrelevant, but they are a necessary introduction to that which is to follow. I had, as I have lived, a twin brother named Ernest, whose resemblance to me was so great that even when we were together people could see no difference between us. Down to the smallest detail, we were exactly the same. As we grew older, this likeness became less marked because our expressions were not the same, but with our features in repose, the points of difference were very slight. It does not become me to say too much of one who is dead, the more so as he is my only brother. 
but I leave his character to those who knew him best. I will only say, for I have to say it, that in my early manhood I conceived a horror of him, and that I had good reason for the aversion which filled me. For my own reputation suffered from his actions, for our close resemblance caused me to be credited with many of them. Eventually, in a peculiar disgraceful business, he contrived to throw the whole odium upon me, in such a way that I was forced to leave the Argentine forever, and to seek a career in Europe. The freedom from his hated presence more than compensated me for the loss of my native land. I had enough money to defray my medical studies at Glasgow, and I finally settled in practice at Bishop's Crossing, in the firm conviction that, in that remote Lancashire hamlet, I should never hear of him again. For years my hopes were fulfilled, and then at last, he discovered me. Some Liverpool man who visited Buenos Aires put him back upon my track. He had lost all his money, and he thought that he would come over and share mine. Knowing my horror of him, he rightly thought I'd be willing to buy him off. I received a letter from him saying that he was coming. It was at a crisis in my own affairs, and his arrival might conceivably bring trouble upon some whom I was especially bound to shield from anything of the kind. I took steps to ensure that any evil which might come should fall on me only, and that, here he turned and looked at the prisoner, was the cause of conduct upon my part, which has been too harshly judged. My only motive was to screen those who were dear to me from any possible connection with scandal or disgrace. That scandal and disgrace would come with my brother was only to say that what had been would be again. My brother arrived himself one night, not very long after my receipt of the letter. I was sitting in my study after the servants had gone to bed when I heard a footstep upon the gravel outside, and an instant later I saw his face looking in at me through the window. He was a clean-shaven man, like myself, and the resemblance between us was still so great that, for an instant, I thought it was my own reflection in the glass. He had a dark patch over his eye, but our features were absolutely the same. Then he smiled in a sardonic way, which had been a trick of his from his boyhood and I knew that he was the same brother who had driven me from my native land and brought disgrace upon what had been an honourable name. I went to the door, and I admitted him in. That would be about ten o'clock that night. When he came into the glare of the lamp, I saw at once that he had fallen upon very evil days. He had walked from Liverpool, and he was tired and ill. I was quite shocked by the expression upon his face. My medical knowledge told me that there was some serious internal malady. He had been drinking also, and his face was bruised as a result of a scuffle which he had had with some sailors. It was to cover his injured eye that he wore this patch, which he removed when he entered the room. He was himself dressed in a pea jacket and flannel shirt, and his feet were bursting through his boots but his poverty had only made him more savagely vindictive towards me. His hatred rose to the height of a mania. I had been rolling in money in England, according to his account, while he had been starving in South America. I cannot describe to you the threats which he uttered or the insults which he poured upon me. 
My impression is that hardships and debauchery had unhinged his reason. He paced around the room like a wild beast, demanding drink, demanding money, and all in the foulest language. I am a hot-tempered man, but I thank God that I am able to say that I remain master of myself and that I never raised a hand against him. My coolness only irritated him the more. He raved, he cursed, he shook his fists in my face, and then suddenly, a horrible spasm passed over his features. He clapped his hand to his side, and with a loud cry, he fell in a heap at my feet. I raised him up and stretched him upon the sofa, but no answer came to my exclamations, and the hand which I held in mine was cold and clammy. His diseased heart had broken down. His own violence had killed him. For a long time I sat as if I were in some dreadful dream, staring at the body of my brother. I was aroused by the knocking of Mrs. Woods, who had been disturbed by that dying cry. I sent her away to bed. Shortly afterwards a patient tapped at the surgery door, but as I took no notice, he or she went off again. Slowly and gradually, as I sat there, a plan was forming itself in my head in the curious automatic way in which plans do form. When I rose from my chair, my future movements were finally decided upon, without my having been conscious of any process of thought. It was an instinct which irresistibly inclined me towards one course. Ever since that change in my affairs which I have alluded, Bishop's Crossing had become hateful to me. My plans of life had been ruined, and I had met with hasty judgments and unkind treatment where I had expected sympathy. It is true that any danger of scandal from my brother had passed away with his life, but still, I was sore about the past and felt that things could never be as they had been. It may be that I was unduly sensitive and that I had not made sufficient allowance for others, but my feelings were as I described. Any chance of getting away from Bishop's Crossing and of everyone in it would be most welcome to me. And here was such a chance as I could never have dared to hope for. A chance which would enable me to make a clean break with the past. There was this dead man lying upon the sofa, so like me that save for some little thickness and coarseness of features, there was no difference at all. No one had seen him come and no one would miss him. We were both clean-shaven, and his hair was about the same length as my own. If I changed my clothes with his, then Dr. Alicius Lana would be found lying dead in his study, and there would be an end of an unfortunate fellow, and of a blighted career. There was plenty of ready money in the room, and this I could carry away with me to help me start, once more, in some other land. In my brother's clothes I would walk by night unobserved as far as Liverpool and in that great seaport I would soon find some means of leaving the country. After my lost hopes, the humblest existence where I was unknown was far preferable in my estimation to a practice, however successful, in Bishop's Crossing, where at any moment I might come face to face with those whom I should wish, if it were possible to forget. I determined to effect the change. And I did so. I will not go into particulars. For the recollection is as painful as the experience. But in an hour my brother lay dressed down to the smallest detail in my clothes, where I slunk out by the surgery door, and taking the back path which led across some fields. 
I started off to make the best of my way to Liverpool, where I arrived the same night. My bag of money and a certain portrait were all I carried out of the house, and I left behind me in my hurry the shade which my brother had been wearing over his eye. Everything else of his I took with me. I give you my word, sir, that never for one instant did the idea occur to me that people might think that I had been murdered, nor did I imagine that anyone might be caused serious danger through this stratagem by which I endeavoured to gain a fresh start in the world. On the contrary, it was the thought of relieving others from the burden of my presence which was always uppermost in my mind. A sailing vessel was leaving Liverpool that very day for Karuna, and in this I took my passage, thinking that the voyage would give me time to recover my balance and to consider the future. But before I left, my resolution softened. I bethought me that there was one person in the world to whom I would not cause an hour of sadness. She would mourn me in her heart, however harsh and unsympathetic her relatives might be. She understood and appreciated the motives upon which I had acted, and if the rest of her family condemned me, she at least would not forget. And so I sent her a note under the seal of secrecy to save her from a baseless grief. If under the pressure of events she broke that seal, she has my entire sympathy and forgiveness. It was only last night that I returned to England, and during all this time, I have heard nothing of the sensation which my supposed death had caused, nor of the accusation that Mr. Arthur Morton had been concerned in it. It was in a late evening paper that I had read an account of the proceedings of yesterday, and I have come this morning as fast as an express train could bring me to testify to the truth. Such was the remarkable statement of Dr. Lucius Lana, which brought the trial to a sudden termination. A subsequent investigation corroborated it to the extent of finding out the vessel in which his brother Ernest Lana had come over from South America. The ship's doctor was able to testify that he had complained of a weak heart during the voyage, and that his symptoms were consistent with such a death as was described. As to Dr. Alicius Lana, he returned to the village from which he had made so dramatic a disappearance, and a complete reconciliation was effected between him and the young squire. The latter having acknowledged that he had entirely misunderstood the other's motives in withdrawing from his engagement. That another reconciliation followed may be judged from a notice extracted from a prominent column in the Morning Post. A marriage was solemnized upon September 19th by the Reverend Stephen Johnson at the parish church of Bishop's Crossing between Alicius Xavier Lana, son of Don Alfredo Lana, formerly foreign minister of the Argentine Republic, and Frances Morton, only daughter of the late James Morton, JP of Leigh Hall, Bishop Crossing. Lancashire. And this concludes The Black Doctor. Your next story is Playing With Fire. I cannot pretend to say what occurred on the 14th of April last at number 17 Bradley Gardens. Put down in black and white, my surmise might seem too crude, too grotesque for serious consideration, and yet that something did occur and that it was of a nature which will leave its mark upon every one of us for the rest of our lives, and is as certain as the unanimous testimony of five witnesses can make it. I will not enter any argument or speculation. I will only give a plain statement 
which will be submitted to John Moyer, Harvey Deacon, and Mrs. Delamere, and withheld from publication unless they are prepared to corroborate every detail. I cannot obtain the sanction of Paul Le Duc, for he appears to have left the country. It was John Moore, the well-known senior partner of Moore, Moore and Sanderson, who had originally turned our attention to occult subjects. He had, like many very hard and practical men of business, a mystic side to his nature, which had led him to the examination and eventually to the acceptance of those elusive phenomena which are grouped together which much that is foolish and much that is fraudulent under the common heading of spiritualism. His researches, which had begun with an open mind, ended unhappily in dogma, and he became as positive and fanatical as any other bigot. He represented in our little group the body of men who have turned these singular phenomena into a new religion. Mrs. Delamere, our medium, was his sister, the wife of Delamere, the rising sculptor. Our experience had shown us that to work on these subjects without a medium was a futile as for an astronomer to make observations without a telescope. On the other hand, the introduction of a paid medium was hateful to all of us. Was it not obvious that he or she would feel bound to return some result for money received, and that the temptation to fraud would be an overpowering one? No phenomena could be relied upon which were produced at a guinea an hour. But, fortunately, Moyer had discovered that his sister was mediumistic. In other words, that she was a battery of that animal magnetic force, which is the only form of energy which is subtle enough to be acted upon from the spiritual plane as well as from our own material one. Of course, when I say this, I do not mean to beg the question, but I am simply indicating the theories upon which we were ourselves, rightly or wrongly, explaining what we saw. The lady came, not altogether with the approval of her husband, and though she never gave any indications of any very great psychic force, we were able, at least, to obtain those usual phenomena of message tilting which are at the same time so puerile and so inexplicable. Every Sunday evening we met in Harvey Deacon's studio at Baddeley Gardens, the next house to the corner of Merton Park Road. Harvey Deacon's imaginative work in art would prepare anyone to find that he was an ardent lover of everything which was auteur and sensational. A certain picturesqueness in the study of the occult had been the quality which had originally attracted him to it, but his attention was speedily arrested by some of those phenomena to which I have referred, and he was coming rapidly to the conclusion that what he had looked upon as an amusing romance and a after-dinner entertainment was really a very formidable reality. He is a man with a remarkable clear and logical brain, a true descendant of his ancestor, the well-known Scotch professor, and he represented in our small circle the critical element, the man who has no prejudices, is prepared to follow facts as far as he can see them, and refuses to theorize in advance of his data. His caution annoyed Moore as much as the latter's robust faith amused Deacon, but each in his own way was equally keen upon the matter. And I? What am I to say that I represented? I was not the devotee. I was not the scientific critic. Perhaps the best that I can claim for myself is that I was the dilettant man about town, anxious to be in the swim of every fresh movement, thankful for any new sensation which would take me out of myself and open up fresh possibilities of existence. 
I am not an enthusiast myself, but I like the company of those who are. Morris talk, which made me feel as if we had a private passkey through the door of death, filled me with a vague contentment. The soothing atmosphere of the seance, with the darkened lights, was delightful to me. In a word, the thing amused me, and so I was there. It was, as I have said, upon the 14th of April last, that the very singular event which I am about to put upon record took place. I was the first of the men to arrive at the studio, but Mrs. Delamere was already there, having had afternoon tea with Mrs. Harvey Deacon. The two ladies and Deacon himself were standing in front of an unfinished picture of his upon the easel. I am not an expert in art, and I have never professed to understand what Harvey Deacon meant by his pictures, but I could see in this instance that it was all very clear and imaginative, fairies and animals and allegorical figures of all sorts. The ladies were loud in their praises, and indeed the colour effect was a remarkable one. What do you think of it, Markham? He said. Well, it's above me, said I. The beasts? What are they? Mythical monsters, imaginary creatures, heraldic emblems, a sort of weird, bizarre procession of them. With a white horse in front. It's not a horse, he said rather testily which was surprising, for he was a very good-humoured fellow as a rule, and hardly ever took himself seriously. What is it then? Can't you see the horn in front? It's a unicorn. I told you they were heraldic beasts. Can't you recognise one? Very sorry, Deacon, said I, for he really seemed to be annoyed. He laughed at his own irritation. Excuse me, Markham, said he. The fact is, I've had an awful job over the beast. All day I have been painting him in and painting him out, and trying to imagine what a real live ramping unicorn would look like. At last I got him, as I hoped. So when you failed to recognize it, it took me on the roar. Why, of course it's a unicorn, said I, for he was evidently depressed at my obtuseness. I can see the horn quite plainly, but I never saw a unicorn except besides the royal arms, and so I never thought of the creature. And these others are griffins and cockatrices, and dragons of sorts? Yes, I had no difficulty with them. It was the unicorn which bothered me. However, there's an end of it until tomorrow. He turned the picture around upon the easel, and we all chatted about other subjects. Moyer was late that evening, and when he did arrive, he brought with him, rather to our surprise, a small, stout Frenchman, whom he introduced as Monsieur Paul Le Duc. I say to our surprise, for he held a theory that any intrusion into our spiritual circle deranged the conditions, and introduced an element of suspicion. We knew that we could trust each other, but all other results were vitiated by the presence of an outsider. However, Moya soon reconciled us to the innovation. Monsieur Paul Le Duc was a famous student of occultism, a seer, a medium, and a mystic. He was travelling in England with a letter of introduction to Moya from the president of the Parisian Brothers of the Rosy Cross. What more natural than that he should bring him to our little seance, or that we should feel honoured by his presence? He was, as I have said, a small stout man, undistinguished in appearance, with a broad, smooth, clean-shaven face, remarkable only for a pair of large, brown, velvety eyes, staring vaguely out in front of him. He was well-dressed with the manners of a gentleman, and his curious little turns of English speech set the ladies smiling. 
Mrs. Deacon had a prejudice against our researchers and left the room, upon which we lowered the lights, as was our custom, and drew up our chairs to the square mahogany table which stood in the center of the studio. The light was subdued but sufficient to allow us to see each other quite plainly. I remember that I could even observe the curious, podgy little square-topped hands which the Frenchman laid upon the table. What fun, said he. It is many years since I have sat in this fashion, and it is to me amusing. Madame is medium. Does Madame make the trance? Well, hardly that, said Mrs. Delamere, but I am always conscious of extreme sleepiness. It is the first stage, then you encourage it, and there comes the trance. When the trance comes, then out jumps your little spirit, and in jumps another little spirit, and so you have direct talking or writing. You leave your machine to be worked by another Hain. But what have unicorns to do with it? Harvey Deacon started in his chair. The Frenchman was moving his head slowly round and staring into the shadows which draped the walls. What a fun, said he. Always unicorns. Who has been thinking so hard upon a subject so bizarre? This is wonderful, cried Deacon. I have been trying to paint one all day, but how could you know it? You have been thinking of them in this room? Certainly. But thoughts are things, my friend. When you imagine a thing, you make a thing. You did not know it, Hein? But I can see your unicorns because it is not only with my eye that I can see. Do you mean to say that I can create a thing which has never existed by merely thinking of it? But certainly, it is the fact which lies under all other facts. That is why an evil thought is also a danger. They are, I suppose, upon the astral plane, said Moyer. Ah, well, these are but words, my friends. They are there, somewhere, everywhere. I cannot tell myself. I see them. I could not touch them. You could not make us see them? It is to materialize them. Hold! It is an experiment. But the power is wanting. Let us see what power we have and then arrange what we shall do. May I place you as I should wish? You evidently know a great deal more about it than we do, said Harvey Deacon. I wish that you would take complete control. It may be that the conditions are not good, but we will try what we can do. Madame will sit where she is, I next, and this gentleman beside me, Mr. Moore, will sit next to Madame, because it is well to have blacks and blondes in turn. So, and now with your permission, I will turn the lights out. What is the advantage of the dark? I asked. Because the force with which we deal is a vibration of ether, and so also is light. We have the wires all for ourselves now, Hein. You will not be frightened in the darkness, madame. What a fun is such a seance! At first, the darkness appeared to be absolutely pitchy. But in a few minutes, our eyes became so far accustomed to it that we could just make out each other's presence. Very dimly and vaguely, it is true. I could see nothing else in the room. Only the black loom of the motionless figures. We were all taking the matter much more seriously than we had ever done before. You will place your hands in front. It is hopeless that we touch, since we are so few round, so large a table. You shall compose yourself, madam. And if sleep should come to you, you will not fight against it. And now we sit in silence and we expect. Hein? 
So we sat in silence and expected, staring out into the blackness in front of us, a clock ticked in the passage, a dog barked intermittently far away. Once or twice a cab rattled past in the streets, and the gleam of its lamps through the chink in the curtains was a cheerful break in that gloomy vigil. I felt those physical symptoms with which previous seances had made me familiar. The coldness of the feet, the tingling in the hands, the glow of the palms, and the feeling of a cold wind upon the back. Strange little shooting pains came in my forearms, especially as it seemed to me in my left one, which was nearest to our visitor. Due no doubt to disturbance of the vascular system, but worthy of some attention all the same. At the same time, I was conscious of a strained feeling of expectancy which was almost painful. From the rigid, absolute silence of my companions, I gathered that their nerves were as tense as my own. And then suddenly, a sound came out of the darkness, a low, sibilant sound, the quick, thin breathing of a woman, quicker and thinner yet it came, as between clenched teeth, to end in a loud gasp with a dull rustle of cloth. And that, my friends, my lovely listeners, is where I'll leave off for now. But stick with me Friday for the finisher of this tale. Well, listeners, I did not see that coming, not even a little. I thought maybe he faked his own death due to a letter he received from abroad. Or maybe he was poisoned or poisoned himself to escape what was awaiting him abroad. Basically, my brain was just saying, something awaits him abroad, and it's calling him back. But how did you guys and gals go? Did you get it right? I was way off, really, but <laughs> I'm keen to hear your thoughts. Also, the painting that he took was such a red herring. Goodness, but it made for a fantastic tale. I hope you liked The Black Doctor. And the new tale, Playing With Fire, well, that is shaping up to have an interesting atmosphere. I had a look at what the French person was saying after his statements. You know when he says Hein? H-E-I-N? Well, it translates to mean Ha, huh, equivalent to an interjection. For example, why were you late, huh? In other words, why were you late, Hein? A follow-on query, as it were, to pull along the conversation. So when Paul Leduc says Hein, that'll make way more sense to my non-French speakers. Now, I have the pleasure to introduce a brand new Patreon supporter, mates. So please, let us all welcome our new Earl Grain Forcer, Tristan Casida. Thank you, Tristan, for being awesome and supporting this podcast. Also, I'll be reading through your story, mate, and providing feedback where possible. I hope the advice I've already given will help you out. Now, my marvelous, my grandiose, my old knighty titans, Matthew J. Bauer. Mr. Crafty Kit. Crafty Kit is a gentleman, a scholar, a scientist, a chief, an artist, an aristocrat. You might be seeing where I'm going with this. Mr. Crafty Kit is an everyman man, king of the skies. He's your butler one month and a twin brother of a family you've known since you were a child. Mr. Crafty Kit is sometimes caught but revels in the discord that he brings to a town, only to move from that city once the chaos becomes a little... How would he put it? Unbecoming of him. In it for the fun and literally daylight robbery, he's a fellow you knew or know or rather thought you knew. And who knows, the man you might be chasing down the street could be your butcher next door. Maya, little miss double entry. 
Money was scarce for a gal in her town, and living on the streets saw money as the difference between being one meal away from death. But Maya transformed herself after stumbling across a teacher, of sorts, who showed her elocution, articulation, and best of all, arithmetic. Now you can't push the street smart out of a girl who was now a woman, and found herself amongst the richest and wealthiest of people, and Maya saw an opportunity for double entry. 100 pounds for you sir, and a couple of cents to me sir, and so this went on and on and on, and Maya built up quite a retinue of cash. Her alias soon became Little Miss Double Entry, storing thousands before her master would pass on. At that point, she was so rich she moved far, far away, and lived in her own mansion, till uh, she was old and grey. Solstra, Seance Selena. Solstra, Seance Selena, they would shout in the streets, bringing in the crowds around her to guess, I mean, channel the names of the deceased around her. You see, she was a charlatan, and she knew that. She was no fool. But whilst young, she learned that you are the fool, or take a wrong turn to become the fool. And Solstra, well, she vowed never to be that fool. So what better way to avoid being the fool than to control the fools? And fool them she did, with a flick of her wrists and a flourish of cards, named and birth dates flowed like a river of knowledge into her mind from the fool's words. It was her mesmerizing lips that drew the crowd in, and her sharp intellect that kept them there. And Solstra Seance Selena never was, and never will be, anyone's fool. Thank all of you for being amazing and supporting the podcast at such an epic level. More music in today's episode as you can tell, and more sound effects. Again, all thanks to you mates. Your support is helping this podcast show its true potential. And my awesome white tea warlords. I own cows bovine magic. In the little town of Shornwall lived a farmer on the brink of financial collapse. His crops had failed due to flooding and his livestock of cows were gone. All except Betsy the yellow fringed cow. It wasn't until Betsy got bored one day, and the farmer equally as bored watched her for a time, that he realized Betsy was talented. Betsy was able to flip her bucket of empty milk onto her head, and then back to the ground effortlessly. And this gave the farmer an idea. Three coins for a Betsy flippage, say, and games of choice and chance were held in Betsy's name. Sure, he'd say it's magic, but he knew better, and he thought Betsy knew that as well. But this lovely cow provided for him till the day he died, happy in the practical magic that he saw, and the joy that Betsy brought to the town. Lee Bauer, Ant Juice. As a wandering salesperson, you have to get creative. You've heard beeswax gum, you've heard rosebud dental health, hell, you've even heard snake oil. And Lee had a feeling that that was heading south and fast. So he had to come up with something different. He created Ant Juice. Oh yeah, a juice made entirely out of, get this, water, citrus, and a single floating ant. Because, you see, Lee learned early on that it's not what you sell, but how you sell it. And in selling his ant juice, he spent time explaining the properties of citrus, water, and one ant to the populace to a point where even he believed its benefits. It's in that the fool became the king. I mean, he did so foolishly, but a king he is nonetheless. And in that, Lee's future was secured. 
Thank you both, you little gems. I hope you enjoyed both your tales. They're a bit tongue-in-cheek and a good bit of fun. Your support means the world to me, folks. Thank you so, so much. And of course, my Earl Grey Enforcers, Chad Warren, Joss Heather, Lorraine Crisanto, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, and Tristan Casida. Welcome, Tristan, to your storytelling family. Mates, have a brilliant Wednesday evening or morning, and I can't wait to get to Friday's tale. Stay awesome, stay safe, and as always, till next we meet.